Paul writes to Timothy as he's pastoring this local church in Ephesus. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Well, what... I, I, my, actually, my oldest daughter asked me this question, asked Brooke and I this question recently. What would, what would Paul say to our church right now? I thought it was good. I've heard somebody else kind of express a similar sentiment. What, if he were to write a letter to Baraka Bible Church, what would he, what would he communicate? What kind of encouragements and instructions and exhortations might he give us? What would we find in a letter like that? I, I don't know. I'm not trying to predict. But on the one hand, we, we can't know, right? And, and I don't want to pretend to say this is exactly what the Apostle Paul would say if he wrote an inspired letter to our church, but we, we can get some idea from his other letters that are inspired by God. The Spirit breathed letters in our New Testament. And so God hasn't left us without encouragement. He hasn't left us without, left us without instructions in the Scripture. So one of those letters is 1 Timothy. So Paul's writing to his younger pastor friend named Timothy, who pastors, serves in the church at Ephesus. It's a large pagan city, but there was this growing, thriving church there in Ephesus. And so this letter is filled with all kinds of practical instruction about how this church should function. And so you see this even earlier in chapter 3, and we're going to see a lot later. And, 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 and yet it's also filled with these rich encouragements of, about who the church is, her identity as, as the Lord's people. And so these verses we're looking at today they're, they're the very heart of Paul's letter to Timothy. They're, they're geographically dead center in this letter. They're the hinge that everything turns on. Everything before leads up to this. Everything after flows from this. And so this is the core of the letter. And so we see again in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon. He wants to see them face to face. Close. He has these, these friendship with Timothy and this close personal connection that he has. Isn't that how the Lord has made His people to be to need relationship, to need even physical proximity to one another, to be together? This is why we don't just watch live streams, but we we come together and we gather in the church assembly and we we meet together and we hear one another's voices and we see one another's faces and we embrace one another and we shake hands. All of those things. That's that's it. I mean, Paul talks about this in other places. Remember that guy with a wonderful name, Onesiphorus, and he says he was often refreshed. He wanted to be refreshed by his presence. And when we find that, there's refreshment in the presence with one another. Okay, but so he says, I hope to come to you soon, but, but in, since I can't right now, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. How one ought to behave in the church. So since Paul can't get to them face to face, he writes this letter, he writes these things to strengthen Timothy as he leads the church. And so he, he writes that they may know how they or we ought to behave in the church. How do we know how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church? How do we know what business we're to be about? How do we know what's important and what's not important? We don't just rely on our traditions or our 
just personal opinions or our feelings or public opinion polls or surveys or anything like that. We, we need the Scriptures to direct us to know how to live. What to do. How to order ourselves. What, what should be our priorities. That's, that's what we need. And so God's Word is our guide. Churches need to be clay in the hands of God. He's shaping. He's setting the agenda. He's directing. and He's changing us from leadership to corporate worship to how we relate to one another, to how we work through conflict, to how we move out on mission. All of these things. The Lord gives us guidance. So we, we come to the Bible and, and, and we ask our Father, how do we live in your family? That's, that's what this letter is all about. So the basic, of the, the basic message of the letter of 1 Timothy, if I could sum it up, is that our, our identity as the church, it determines how we live as a church. Our identity as a church determines how we live as a church. So who we are, who we are is God's chosen instrument of, of proclaiming the gospel to the nations. Who we are, that shapes how we're to function, how we're to behave in the church. And so in our text, the first thing he does in verses um, 15 there and 16, 15, he, he gives us these three kind of verbal snapshots of, of the church. <coughs> Excuse me. And then, and then he gives a summary of the church's message in this hymn, early Christian hymn. So as we look at these, you see, there's, there's nothing like the church, brothers and sisters. And, and I, 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 listen, I know we're walking through hard times right now, and this church is, 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 is going through a really painful season. But there's no greater, there's no greater um, gift from God than His people, the church. And so I, 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 I beg you, don't let your heart become embittered towards Christ and towards His church. Even when, just because we're walking through hard things, and I, and parents, talk with your children. Children, talk to your parents. And I mean, we need to we need to remind one another of these things. So we don't want to ever forget what's essentially and eternally true about the church. So two things I want us to remember: first, never forget the church's staggering identity. Staggering identity. So we have these three pictures of the church we're given here. The first picture we see the church is the quote household of God. It's a household. It's a family. The church is this unique family with this one-of-a-kind dad. That's, that's it. And so it's not just a building. And we know this. It's not a weekly event. It's not just some social organization that can be explained by just a group of people happening to be together at the same time in the same place. It's not that. We are The church is the living God's family. And, and we're part of it by adoption. So we're members of God's household. Galatians 6.10 says he, he calls the church the household of faith. The family of faith. In Ephesians 2.19 So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Part of the family of God. The Bible doesn't just say we're, we're like a family. The Bible says we are a family. We are a family. In fact, your spiritual family is going to outlast your physical family. This is, this is eternally true. If you are in Christ, if you have been redeemed and adopted by God, to, you have been placed into this big family. Bigger than these walls. Bigger than the people in this room. I mean, big family. And yet this is a smaller expression of that big family that you've been adopted in. And so this is why our involvement in the church and and, and our love for the church and the church around the world and this local expression of the church is so important it cannot be replaced again by anything else. 
There are all these commands in the New Testament and the Scriptures that, that cannot be obeyed in isolation of one another. There are all kinds of promises that come to us together. Assurances that, that we need corporately, together. And so being a part of a church family, it's more than, again, just a group of individuals showing up at the same time and same place. It means this it's caring relationships. It's a household. It's family. It's closeness. It's, it's leaning on one another for support and help. It's all of those one another's of Scripture. And I'm grateful for the manifestations we see in this flock and that I've experienced in my own life as being part of this church. It's not a hangout. It's not our hangout. It's not ours at all. It's Christ's church. It's His family. It's God's household. And so that's the first snapshot. And so, so the church is a family. And, and church, because it's a family, it takes hard work. I mean, just, just think of your own family. It's not like, oh, yeah, well, we're related, so everything's, everything's good. No, it takes work. Because it can be messy. It can be difficult. It takes commitment, endurance. There will be disagreements, and conflicts, and misunderstandings, and forgiveness will need to be sought and given. But this is part of life in a family. And it's not just a plain, ordinary, modern family. We're part of this ancient, incredible family. And one that has a very bright future. I'm talking about the Big C Church. I mean, it is, it goes way back and it's got a bright future ahead. And we're part of that church. That's, so with all of the other stuff we don't understand, we know this. We are, we are, without question, part of the household of God. Second picture is, is that he says it's the church of the living God. He's just piling up these expressions. The church is the living God's dwelling place. The, the word church, most basically, it's the word ecclesia in Greek, but it, it's, it's, the, it's the assembly, the gathering of the called out ones. That's the idea of the word. And so this Sunday morning gathering, it, it's, it doesn't equal the church, but it's certainly not less than what the church is. The church can't be less than a gathering. This is important. This is why we gather every Lord's Day. It's, it's critical to who we are. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about this critical role of the church coming together and gathering and and that's where God's presence can clearly be seen so that if unbelievers should come into our midst, they should sense that the living God is here. And He is. It's the living God's. It's the church of the living God. The dwelling place of God who lives. Now the Ephesian believers, they were surrounded, surrounded by pagan temples. Statues all over the place to their so-called gods. And, and their gods are deaf, they're mute, they're dead. But you think of the contrast as, as Paul writes this to, to what he's saying here. We're not, we're not the, we're not the, the uh, church of the, of the dead, you know, idols and gods and, you know, stone statues. We are the church of the living God. He's alive, he's moving, he's working. And, and he owns, he's the one who owns this gathering of the called out ones. It's His. It's not mine. It's not the elders. It's not yours. It's Christ. It's the living God's church. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. We are the church of God which He obtained. He bought with His own blood. Paul called the church in Ephesians the God's own possession that exists to the praise of His glory. And so when He's... And, and, and the living God, He's not some absentee landlord like he, He's just... Uh, just kind of 
from a distance, yeah, that's mine, I own it, and yet they kind of dwell in it. No, he is, he is among us and he's working in us and through us, actively involved. So living God's church, his presence dwells among us. That's, that's crazy reality, isn't it? But it's true. There's always a danger for us to fall into just kind of a routine, um, routine Christianity. Just go through the motions, just attend programs, activities, but don't live with this acute sense of the real vital presence of God. But yet God is meeting with us. Even today, He's meeting with us. It's the living God's gathering. The living God's church. He's present with us and working today through the church. Just like we talked about last Sunday. Christ is continuing to work in and through His church. A third picture. Before we get to the message, though the, the church, he says, is a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar and buttress of the truth. So there's, there's a sense in which God's truth, his word, it's absolute. It is, it is completely independent of us. We don't make it true. We don't, you know, it's not more true. The more we understand it or less true, the less we understand it or it, it is just true. I mean, the psalmist says, forever, Lord, your word is settled in the heavens, meaning it's untouchable. God's truth is eternal and it's transcendent and it's, it's untouchable by us. It's this fixed reality. God's truth is revealed in Jesus Christ. It just is. We don't have to, you know, make it true or anything like that. It's true whether you believe it or not. It's true whether we proclaim it or not. It's just true. So that's, that's part of it. But in, in another sense, the church upholds and supports the truth. Those aren't contrasting re- realities, but what he says here, the church is a pillar and buttress. It's a brace or support of truth. There was in Ephesus, the most dominant feature, if you kind of looked over the skyline of Ephesus, was this massive temple to Artemis. And so it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, located right in the heart of Ephesus. had 127 pillars that supported it. Each of those pillars was a gift from a different king. They were made of marble. Some of them were studded with jewels and, and overlaid with gold. Very intricate, uh, in, in just massive pillars that supported this temple. I, I don't know I, 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 like how long each of one of those made, but I remember when we were in Israel in March, one of the things they talked about was just some of those uh, really ornate carvings. I don't forget what they call like the top of a pillar, that the bigger part where they have all of the uh, carvings and stuff in it. Some some stonemasons, that would be the only thing they did their entire life. They would be trained and apprenticed for years and years and years, and then they would have one project to complete one kind of cap of one pillar. That was their life. And so, I mean, you can just imagine, but there are 100, how many did I say? 127 of these pillars. That's an odd number to me, but 127 Engineers, you architects, you're just kind of figuring out how does that work and is that symmetric and all of that. But the temple itself was 450 feet long, 225 feet wide, and 60 feet high. That's massive. To give you some perspective, a football field, including the end zones, is 360 feet long by 160 feet wide. So this is huge. This is an impressive structure. And this is a great object lesson for the Apostle Paul to use as he's writing to these to Timothy, who's in this church at Ephesus. And these huge pillars, they're not just for show. They are supporting this enormous roof over this entire expanse. 
It's incredible. And so Paul takes the image, that image, and he says, the church is the pillar which supports or upholds God's truth. That's incredible. Every church is, is it part of the, our responsibility, part of our identity is we are, we are those and as we preach the word, as we sing the word, as we pray the word, as we read the word, as we study the word and memorize the word and meditate upon the word, we are supporting and bolstering up the teaching that's been delivered to us in the scriptures. This is who we are. We're this bulwark of the gospel. And so we need to hold it up or to display it or to support it in those ways. Churches, as Martin Luther said, the mouth house of God. The mouth house of God. Our job is to proclaim the truth of God, to be a pillar of truth. To put God's truth on display. We're word people. This is why we devote so much time to it. Now the question where he goes next is, what is this truth? What is this truth we're called to support and promote? Is it our, our perspectives on appropriate music styles? Our views on uh, gun control or something like that. I mean, those are fine things to talk about, but is that what Paul is really getting at? What does the truth consist of? Or what is it centered on? What do we major on as, as those who, who are this, as we're this pillar and buttress of the truth? Well, verse 16 tells us. Paul gives us this very succinct summary of the gospel. It's the truth about Christ in a nutshell. It's like a confession, a creed. This is the message that is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. We are saved by believing this. We, are, we proclaim it so that those who are not saved might, be, might believe and be saved. This is it. And so, so first, we, we don't ever want to forget the staggering identity of who the church is. And secondly, never forget the church's saving message. Saving message. Verse 16. Again, this is an early church confession probably even a hymn. This is probably something they sang together as they gathered for worship. And so it contains these six truths about Jesus Christ. The core, listen, that core of truth, that truth that settled in the heavens, the truth that the church is this pillar and buttress supporting, the core of truth is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. It's not a set of morals. It's not a way of life. It's Christ. It's a person. And so you see this great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Great indeed we confess. These believers unanimously agree these things are true. They're beyond dispute. This is what we confess and what we confess is great. And, and so with our context of I know where there's confusion and there's disagreement and there's uh, even division and distrust right now, but there's Here's something that we can agree on and confess together. The, the, the mystery of godliness. The mystery. It's not you know, something that's strange and ooh, mysterious and mystical. It's, it's something that was previously hidden but it's now revealed. It's the mystery of godliness. It's the truth of Christ. It's the Gospel. It's God incarnate who came to save sinners. That's what we're going to see in this statement. And he calls it a mystery because it comes by direct revelation from God. This isn't something that man just kind of reasoned up on his own or that we could get by intuition or, or through speculation or something like that. No, it's, it's been revealed to us by God. And it's great. It's mystery. Now, it's not obvious to us as English readers, but if you, if you were one of the first readers, you would know exactly what Paul is doing as he writes this. Great 
we confess is the mystery of godliness. Because if you were in Ephesus, remember that temple to Artemis was right dead center. It was the biggest thing. It was, it was where it, everything was happening. And, and, and what you would hear as you walked by that temple to Artemis would be this loud, resonating confession. And what they would say, and you see this in Acts chapter 19, verse 28. Paul talks about this, or Luke writes about it, but as Paul's there, in Ephesus you could hear this chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It was like their, their cry that, that heralded across Ephesus. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's what they're saying. That's what they're chanting inside that temple and around that temple. But Paul's saying, here's the church, the songs, the, here's the song the church sings. Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is Christ. And why I say that? Because look at it again. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And what do we note about this mystery? It's all about a person. And he says, here's the mystery of godliness. What does he say? He, he, Christ, was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So we just see these core truths. This is our message. First one, Jesus was revealed in the flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, was born in Bethlehem. It really happened, people. A real place, in real time, to real parents. God became man. The eternal Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The pre-existent, infinite One took on finite human nature in the Incarnation. The One who spoke the whole universe into existence became small and was fed by His sinful human mother as a little baby boy. He, he was revealed in the flesh, Charles Spurgeon said in a much more profound way, infinite and yet an infant. Eternal and yet born of a woman. Supporting a universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms. That's the mystery of godliness. Jesus, He was manifested in the flesh. Or in a more popular but profound statement, if you're familiar with the Narnia series, Queen Lucy in the last battle says of the incarnation, she says this, in our, in our world, a stable once had something inside that was bigger than our whole world. It's great. So Jesus was manifest in the flesh. Second core truth, Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. The word here, vindicated, it's, it's literally our word justified. Declared righteous. When Jesus came to this earth, He didn't come as a mighty king and in purple robes and showing off all of His wealth and all of His splendor and all of His glory and majesty. He came and He took the lowly form of a servant, right? So the ministry of the Holy Spirit, when we're saying He's vindicated by the Spirit, it was to declare Jesus to be the Son of God, the righteous one. And this happened in a couple ways. When Jesus identified Himself with sinners at His own baptism, when John baptized Him, the Spirit, what? Vindicated Him. Descending upon Him like a dove. And then, of course, the ultimate is when He endured the extreme humiliation of the cross when He bore our sin on that tree being numbered with the transgressors. What do we find? The Holy Spirit declared Jesus to be the Son of God by raising Him from the dead. Romans 1.4 Again, you just put yourself in the shoes of a Jewish passerby as Christ was being crucified. So this man who claimed to be the Son of God, now he's hanging on a criminal's cross being spit on, 
being laughed at, ridiculed, mourned, uh, mocked. He's hanging naked. He is, he is, it is just utterly humiliating. Bleeding, agony, mocked because everyone who hung on a tree was cursed of God. Everybody knew that. Every good Jewish boy. He was despised. He was rejected. He's, he's hanging there drowning on his own blood. Now would you have thought if you saw someone in that awful condition, here is God's Messiah. No. And yet on Sunday morning, after being in that tomb for two days, his, his heart began to beat again. And by the power of the Spirit, our King walked out of the tomb. He's vindicated as the Son of God. This is what it's saying. He was, he was manifested in the flesh, but He, through suffering and resurrection, was vindicated by the Spirit. Third truth. He was seen by angels. Now, I may be an odd one to you. Why is this included? But you, you look at His whole life and His ministry, and this is an important part. His whole life, angels showed up. He's no ordinary guy. Angels proclaim His... Angels announced Jesus' conception to Mary. Angels proclaim His birth to the shepherds. Angels ministered to Him as He's tempted in the wilderness. Angels strengthened Him in the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane. An angel rolled the stone away from the tomb. An angel announced His resurrection after He was risen. Angels addressed the disciples at Christ's ascension. Angels. He was seen by God's own messengers from His throne, dispatched to testify to who Christ is. They're involved in His life from beginning to end. And as 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 says, that, that, that angels, they long to look into the Gospel, into the glories of Jesus Christ. Angels. Jesus was seen by angels. Fourth core truth. Jesus was preached among the nations. This is our saving message that we proclaim, church. He was preached among the nations. After the resurrection, Jesus made it plain to the disciples that the message of salvation, it wasn't just for the Jews. It wasn't just for this one particular region. No, it was for the whole world, for the nations. Matthew 28, 19, 20, we know the Great Commission. and Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. There's one message, church, for all people. Jesus was preached among the nations. He was, it was preached that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the Gospel. That's Christ. That's the message that we preach among the nations. The saving King tells His church to herald His saving truth all over His world. That's what we do. That's what we see later in Acts chapter 17, verse 7. Paul and Silas and the other Christians there, they're accused of what? Of quote, acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. That's what we say. That's our message. There's another king, and he's Jesus. There are all the false kings, but there's a true and a righteous and an eternal king. And his name is Jesus. And we preach that message all over the world. I mean, what difference will it make in our lives, friends? What difference will it make in this church if the supremacy of Jesus Christ, great is Christ, great is the mystery of godliness, great is Jesus Christ, if the supremacy of Jesus Christ 
captures us like it did the early church. Another core truth, quick. Jesus was believed on in the world. He's preached among the nations, proclaimed among the nations, and then He's believed on in the world. At the first public preaching after the resurrection, we saw this recently in Acts. 3,000 plus people are saved. Thousands more came to trust in Christ in the days that followed. So the church grew quickly and spread. And as we've been seeing, the Gospel continues to spread. The Gospel continues to be preached among the nations. The Gospel continues to be believed on in the world today. Are you here? Christ is being preached now. Your only hope, our only hope, any of us, we are all born dead in our sins and trespasses. We are without hope, without God in this world. This is how we come out of the womb. We are separated from God. And yet God loves us. He loves you. And He sent His own Son, Jesus, to pay the penalty, to pay the price for your sin. And through His suffering, He he took on Himself all of the condemnation for your sin that you deserve. He bore it all. The innocent one died for the guilty so that the guilty one might be declared righteous in God's sight through His death. And yet, He rose again. He was vindicated by the Spirit. And and and, and, And that resurrection gives us assurance that, that atonement for sin has been made. That forgiveness is open and offered to you. Freedom can be found in Jesus Christ. Not, be, not by earning it, not by deserving it, but by simply trusting and clinging to and, and reaching out and clinging to, to Jesus Christ and trusting in Him alone. That's the message. And if you have not believed, you can, you can be part of this confession that, that the Gospel is being believed on in the world. Believe today. Talk to someone today and we will... We will rejoice with you. The last core truth that's part of this hymn and this confession is that Jesus was taken up in glory. The one crowned who wore the crown of thorns is crowned in glory. Hebrews 1.3 says it this way, after He had made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, the ascension in this confession, in this hymn, it's put last. It's out of chronological sequence. The hymn is bracketed by Jesus' humiliation and His exaltation. And so it ends on this note because the the, the ascension is the crowning jewel of His exaltation. That's what Matthew Henry says of this. Jesus is seated at the right hand of Father with all authority in heaven and earth. And the angels... As the angels promised, one day He's going to return in the same manner in which He ascended. Visibly, bodily, in power and in glory. He's coming back. I mean, Listen, there are just a few lines, just a few words in this little hymn, but there's a lot of truth packed into those few lines, isn't there? There's a lot that we confess together, church. It's a lot that makes us say, great is Christ. Great is the mystery of God. And this message of this saving message that we proclaim is, is, is foundational to who we are, to the staggering identity that we have. And so we, we communicate a lot. We're going to, hymns do that, songs do that, don't they? They can communicate a lot of truth in a way that's powerful. We're going to sing in a moment and we'll do that very thing. But this is certainly doing that. There's nothing quite like the church. 
We have this staggering identity, the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth. And we have this saving message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the mystery of godliness. With all of the warts and challenges and problems and dysfunction that can be in a church, there's all kinds of blessings and all kinds of beautiful things, even right now in this local assembly. It's not all bad, brothers and sisters. There's a lot of good things going on. But in all of that, the church is God's chosen instrument to proclaim the gospel to the nations. It's why we exist. And this local church is a local expression of that bigger capital C church reality. And the job isn't done. There's work to be done until Christ returns. This is our task. Jesus is still being proclaimed among the nations. He's still being believed on in the world. And I pray that Baraka would continue to, with strong resolve, to be fully engaged in that work. Let's pray. We thank you that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're thankful for so many in this room who have done just that. That's the work of your grace in us, that we would look to you in faith. So we thank you for that salvation. We thank you for the opportunity to celebrate as we come to table. But we pray that you would also increase our resolve, Lord, to be about preaching that message. Because how can they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Father, make us a beautiful feet. This congregation, continue on in, 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 in preaching this good news, this gospel message, embracing the staggering identity we have and holding out this saving message to the nations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.